Welcome to 28 Tech, where this week we're looking at some of the tech industry's fantastic failures. Apple unveiled uh, a computer called the Cube, which was aimed, it said, and uh, its executives assured me, at the prosumer market. That was the sort of professional who was also a sort of a bit of a consumer. The trouble was you couldn't upgrade it very much. It was very expensive for the average consumer. It didn't, you couldn't upgrade it in the way that the professionals wanted. Uh, and so it didn't actually sell very well, um, which meant that uh, the cube was, as they said, put on ice. And later on, we look at the flip side. And what are some of the common elements of successful startups and entrepreneurs? They pretty much can make decisions and go with it. Despite, like, you know, other people would think, like, wow, are you crazy, like, doing that? Like, why would you even do that? Or a lot of other people would make up a lot of excuses on not to do something. I'm Angelina Draper, and as always, we kick off with a roundup of this week's top tech news stories. Chinese tech company Tencent launched an app this week called WeChat Phonebook. The service allows WeChat's 438 million users to make phone calls over Wi-Fi or data connection plans, similarly to Skype's mobile app. Although the app quickly made it to the top of the Chinese iOS and Android app stores, reports quickly emerged of the service not working properly, including the inability to actually make calls. Commenting on WeChat's official Weibo social media account, the company blamed the technical problems on heavy user interest. outlets were still engulfed in the Taylor Swift versus Spotify story this week, with both sides standing behind their positions. You might recall that earlier this month, the American pop singer's music label Big Machine ordered Spotify to remove all of her content from the music streaming service in an effort to boost sales of her albums. She claimed that she didn't feel Spotify fairly compensated the writers, producers, artists and creators of music. Spotify disputes this and says they are a preferable alternative to piracy. The company's founder, Daniel Ek, says in fact they are recovering money for artists and the music business that piracy was stealing away. Talking on Bloomberg Television, former MTV creative director Fred Seibert says this decision might work for Taylor Swift, but that many other artists rely on online platforms to launch their careers. And all you have to do is look at an artist like a couple of years ago, Macklemore, built his whole career online, on YouTube, on the streaming services, without really much help from what we think of as a traditional record company. Yeah. And that's the thing about these new platforms, is they honor new artists. Legacy artists have all sorts of other ways to make money. Spotify is not alone in having trouble with music labels and artists. Google's YouTube announced this week a music subscription service called Music Key. It had been delayed while Google resolved issues with independent music labels and artists. According to the BBC, musician Billy Bragg had previously said YouTube was trying to strong-arm labels into agreeing to low rates by threatening to block their material altogether. For the first six months, Music Key will be free, but only available to users on an invitation basis. Once made public, the service will cost $9.99 per month, competing directly with Spotify's premium service. 
Samsung held its second annual developer conference in San Francisco this week, where it unveiled a number of gadgets and updates to existing products. One of the most intriguing presentations was Samsung Electronics Project Beyond. It's a 360-degree virtual reality camera that captures everything around it in 3D. The camera has a spherical shape and captures panoramic views through 16 high-definition cameras positioned around the edges. One gigapixel of 3D footage is captured every second, and it's then stitched together into one continuous scene that is viewed through Samsung Gear's virtual reality headset. No news yet on release dates or price. Japanese technology company NEC has developed an app that recognizes fake goods. Brand name luxury items usually come with a unique surface pattern, which NEC says acts like a fingerprint, allowing their app to spot fakes. Although the app might be used by consumers, it's predominantly aimed at retailers so they can trace the origin and distribution of their products. Manufacturers take a picture of specific details of each product using a special magnifying lens and compare it to images of the originals stored in a cloud-based database. According to the company, the object fingerprint authentication technology is the first of its kind for identifying individual objects. It relies on tracing fine patterns in the grain of metal or plastic, which occur naturally during manufacturing and are invisible to the human eye. At least a few times a year, media outlets like to put together a list of some of the biggest technology flops around. Large companies, as well as small ones, are constantly launching new gadgets, prototypes and updates. Their aim is mostly to improve our lives and give us things we never even knew we needed or wanted. Apple might have given us the iPod and the iPhone, but it also has a few phenomenal flops in its closet. So do Microsoft, Google, BlackBerry and almost all major tech firms. Charles Arthur is a freelance journalist who used to be the technology editor at The Guardian. He has covered technology around the globe and spoke to me about the risks associated with being a tech firm. Every big company, and actually small companies too, especially when they venture into hardware, uh, are taking a big risk because the thing about making hardware is that you have to tool up factories, you have to uh, produce products, and often they like to have the element of surprise so that people will be interested and uh, will go, ooh, about the new product. And it's often difficult to actually get it right. So um, if you go back, for example, to uh, 2000, Apple unveiled uh, a computer called the Cube which was aimed, it said, and uh, its executives assured me, at the prosumer market. That was the sort of professional who was also a sort of a bit of a consumer. The trouble was you couldn't upgrade it very much. It was very expensive for the average consumer. It didn't, you couldn't upgrade it in the way that the professionals wanted. Uh, and so it didn't actually sell very well, um, which meant that uh, the cube was, as they said, put on ice uh, after a year. And uh, Apple has never tried to do that again. If you look at uh, Google, for example, um, Google has made lots of um, uh, sort of forays into hardware. It uh, tried a thing called the Nexus Q, which was a uh, sort of media player a couple of years ago. Uh, it was given away to all the developers who turned up to its I.O. conference, and uh, the expectation was that it was going to go on sale. Um, but people found it was so difficult to operate, they, they couldn't quite wrap their heads around what it was meant to do. And the Nexus Q never actually went on sale. It was, it was never made uh, available for sale to the public. Uh, so it was actually killed before it, before it went on sale, which I think is, um, you know, although after it had been made uh, publicly available. Uh, Microsoft has got its own example. It uh, had the Microsoft Kin, which was a, uh, a 
sort of not quite smartphone, uh, just in the era when smartphones were starting to come on, starting to rise. So sort of the sort of 2008, 9, 10 time frame. Um, that when that was made available, it went on sale, and uh, Microsoft pulled it because sales were so poor that the uh, the mobile carriers in the U.S. said they simply wouldn't uh, tolerate it anymore. Uh, they were just taking too big a hit. Um, tolerate, they, they knifed it after uh, less than two months on sale. Um, and Hewlett-Packard, who many people think of as a you know, gigantic company, uh, innovative, one which has sort of transformed the world of printing, uh, a lot of other experiences you have, they went into the tablet field with the touchpad. Um, the touch, touchpad was a terrible failure. Again, they, they killed that uh, in less than two months. It vied with the Microsoft Kin for um, least time on sale. There are examples all, all through. You can, you can find uh, you know, companies which you think of as, as big and successful, which make these moves into hardware, and, and they're really not a good move at all. And uh, the, the difficulty often seems to be figuring out what's going to be successful, what's not going to be, and, and not actually producing it before it's not successful. How forgiving do you think the public is? How many times will they accept a company launching a product that ultimately fails before they start doubting the values and the quality the brand represents? I think that people's memories tend to be comparatively short in as much as uh, if a product isn't successful, then that generally means that few people have bought it. The actual nightmare for a company would be if a product is widely used, but then uh, serious flaws surface in it, which mean that people can't use it, and so their money has been sunk into it, and, and they discover that, that it's, a real, it's a real pain. Um, and there's a form of that, if you like, with uh, what happened with Microsoft and Windows Vista, which was its uh, successor to XP. So this is in sort of 2005 or so. Um, Windows Vista was a great advance in terms of security on Windows XP, but the trouble was that that security came at the price of usability. People kept on getting a thing called user, user access control uh, panel coming up whenever they were trying to do things. Normally in XP, they would have just sailed on them being able to do. The thing was, uh, the UAC, as, as it was called, was actually trying to save them from doing risky things security-wise. But the experience was that it, it was just getting in the way. Microsoft recovered from that and made Windows 7 much better. But then with Windows 8, yes. uh, they changed the look and feel of, uh, of how Windows uh, had operated since really going back to about Windows 95 in 1995. Uh, and Windows 8, again, had a very um, negative reaction from a lot of average consumers, not the sort of, not the power users, but the people who had just sort of been used to Windows for, you know, a couple of decades. And this was reflected by a lot of people seeking out Windows 7 uh, devices. So that's an example where the product is really widely distributed, really widely used, but people don't like it. And, and that's a different form of disaster from the sort of thing that you saw with the Kin or the touchpad. Uh, or indeed, you know, if you look at people like uh, BlackBerry, um, they, they decided when Apple launched the iPad that uh, they wouldn't miss out as they had done before. When Apple launched, launched the iPhone in 2007, uh, BlackBerry, or RIM as it was then called, uh, thought that um, the whole touchscreen idea that uh, not having a physical keyboard was just silly. Um, and then when the iPhone and Android phones using touchscreens turned out to be so popular, they had a crash program to induce their own touchscreen. That was the BlackBerry Storm, and that was that was very badly received. Uh, it, it simply wasn't a good user experience. So this time, when, when Apple introduced the iPad in 2010, uh, BlackBerry decided they would uh, get in on the ground floor and they would uh, have a crash program again, but they would they would do it well. 
unfortunately, the playbook that they produced uh, was a disaster for them uh, because it didn't sell and it uh, cost so much to produce and they tied up so much money in, in, uh, in the inventory that essentially it uh, torpedoed the company. Companies are investing an awful lot of money in focus groups, in uh, talking to users about what they would like to, what they would like to see. But they also quite often rely on, shall we call them visionaries, people who are expected to know what we are going to want before we even know it. Steve Jobs was one example, of course. How much do do you think companies are relying on these individuals to get it right? That's quite hard to see from the inside. I mean, the the general feeling is that focus groups will tell you uh, whether they like something that you present to them, uh, and they'll give you an early reaction. But focus groups really aren't very good at telling you what it what their unfulfilled needs are. They're really not not good at doing that. The the, you know, the unfulfilled need is actually the one which is the sort of thing that you can make lots of money out of. So the whole idea of touchscreens uh, for phones um, looked like a, a sort of a madly expensive thing to do. But once you make them in volume, once you have a really uh, you know, intuitive operating system tied to them, then they become useful. But you wouldn't have found that out from a focus group. So uh, the visionaries within companies have to be have to be sort of moderated uh, by the people who also say, yes, well, can we actually do that? Is it, is it feasible to make this? And uh, in many cases, um, the visionaries and the analysts within companies, what they're doing is they're, they're simply looking, extrapolating from the, the numbers that we know already. For example, storage is getting cheaper, bandwidth is getting greater, uh, the cost of various components is falling. They look at that, they draw a line which goes forward sort of four or five years, and they say, well, in four or five years, you can predict that you know, the cost of making a phone will be below $50. Therefore, what does that mean about our business model and about what we uh, should be trying to make now? So, for example, any company that's making a phone now, uh, they're probably planning two years out. I mean, Apple, uh, it's pretty clear, plans at least two years ahead uh, when it's making a phone so that any phone that's uh, just been unveiled uh, today, um, they would have uh, already started working on the prototype that's going to be unveiled in 2016. Uh, and the phone that's going to be uh, released in 2015 is uh, probably uh, fin in the finishing stages of uh, moving towards production. So what we see now is um, very much the, the sort of the ice, the tip of the iceberg uh, compared to all the activity that's going on underneath. OK, and finally, let me ask you about the, the global nature of products today, which um, there are there are products now coming out of all different countries from China, Japan, India is producing quite a lot of tech. And of course, the Western nations, what works in one country doesn't always work, work in another. Call it lost in translation or whatever you'd like. What are some examples that you've seen where something that's been successful in one country has worked simply has not in others? Well, there are, China is uh, the obvious example uh, where there are, there are really big online services in China uh, which simply haven't uh, made it across the uh, the Great Firewall, as it's called, the, uh, the, the sort of the, the system that uh, keeps the Chinese Internet, in effect, separate from the West so that um, inside China you can't get easy access to Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and so there are gigantic um, 
sort of uh, social networks and so on and internet uh, services available inside China, which you simply don't find uh, outside it. Um, similarly, uh, in Japan, there's the iMode system for uh, mobile phone data, which um, you know, about a decade ago or so was being proclaimed as the future. That was how everyone was going to be uh, accessing uh, the internet. And yet iMode has remained very much something which is special to Japan. Uh, it hasn't really made the uh, the move to be used outside. Instead, other countries have used um, 3G services, which are more standardized. Um, and another example in the hardware space uh, is uh, so-called phablets, phones which have a screen of about five inches diagonally or greater. Now, those are enormously popular in Asia, uh, especially among people where those are their first computing device. Uh, the, you know, the phablets have sort of followed the rise of smartphones. Uh, so for many people, you know, they don't have a PC, but they do have a phablet. They do have a large screen phone. Um, but when you compare that to the West, uh, and you compare that to countries which have a uh, high penetration of uh, PCs in the home, then you find that phablets are much less popular. So the popularity uh, is very high in Asia, it's sort of uh, moderate in Europe, and it's comparatively small in the U.S., where lots of people have a uh, home computer, perhaps a laptop or whatever, uh, which they'll have at work or which they'll have in their home. And, and there's, a, there's a sort of key difference there, which is the access to computing uh, is different between the different countries, and that... Uh, determines what sort of hardware demand there is. And you know, the rise of phablets was something which I think um, people with a US-centric view really wouldn't have been able to predict. But it's absolutely obvious when you see people using them in Asia that uh, this is their primary computing device and it's something which uh, you know, they really rely on. Charles, thank you very much. My pleasure. My next guest defines himself as a problem solver, who's also into tech, gadgets, fashion, snowboarding, food, and many other things. Gene Su is the director and co-founder of Startups HK, an organization launched in 2009 with the aim of helping startups find funding and helping cultivate and nurture fresh ideas. This week saw Hong Kong host its main startup conference, Start Me Up Week 2014, where I caught up with Gene and asked him what makes a successful startup. What I've seen is that successful startups usually has the top-notch team. That's what I've seen. Basically, successful startups really, you know, they don't always land on the right idea at first, but with the right team in place, they can always figure out like a way to make an idea work by tweaking the idea, and most of the time when startups speak, they call it pivoting. How different is the end product from the original idea? It sometimes can be very different. I mean, just in today's conference, for example, Google Van, which um, does basically mobile van um, calling, and they used to be in the lunchbox delivery business. Basically, they're actually placing ads in lunchboxes, and they're actually selling the ad space on lunchboxes. But when they were actually trying to deliver these lunch boxes, they realized that they couldn't find any vans to help them because they were having a hard time calling for vans. And then they realized there's an opportunity there and there's been like an incumbent industry that's been running for 30 years, a very inefficient model where like a dispatch caller would be holding onto a whole network of vans. But by introducing Google Van, they now cut out the middleman and work directly with the drivers. And the driver has a much more efficient way of finding a customer, too. 
And in this example, how long did it take before, or was there a moment in which they said, oh my goodness, we have to change our plan? How long was that from their initial idea of lunchboxes to actually coming out with GoGo Van? Uh, I don't know exactly, but I think it should be roughly a few months. With startups, you work with a lot of startup companies. Would you say there's a magic number of people, um, one too few, how many are too many? I would say in the team size, usually a successful one is about two to three. That's from the initial phase or actually until launch? Uh, initial phase, obviously, but yeah, it could be post-launch as well. But for them to get the product right, usually it takes more than one person. Of course, single founder startups are possible, but it's just a lot harder to do because one person usually has to wear too many hats and they cannot be good at everything. What would you say is the right balance between what the ingredients that make up a successful startup being the vision, the idea, and actually good planning and execution? Vision is definitely important, but I would say like a very like the execution is definitely top, like uh, way more important than vision. I'd say in terms of percentage splits. It's about 10% vision, 90% execution. Wow, that's actually quite, quite a big number for the execution part versus the vision. Yeah. Have you seen, tell me a little bit about, have you seen some epic fails? Yeah, I mean like, uh, you mean in Hong Kong or you mean somewhere else? Either. You've worked in Hong Kong and abroad. I think, I think one of the biggest ones that we all know, not, maybe not as, Hong Kong have never had such a big one. I think the biggest one that we all know in the startup world is called Color, C-O-L-O-R. Uh, it's a very high-tech photo app that basically allows you to share photos just by taking photos, and they can immediately sense the sound, the ambient noise, and put all these photos together of people that are taking photos in the same vicinity. And they raise a humongous amount of funding. I think like uh, 100 mil or something like that from the first round. And they basically were gone after a few months. What happened? Like their product basically didn't take off, right? And like they were burning a lot of money and then basically I think things just like started to go in a bad direction. They spent a lot of money on marketing and like, um, you know, they generated a lot of noise but when the noise died down, they realized that the users are actually not continuing to use the app. So they run into a big problem with like, you know, investors and so forth. And you know, one thing about you know, the startup craze is that sometimes when like, there's too much money chasing after one idea, you have a lot more expectation right, as an investor on how much this idea can deliver at the end. And like, I think nowadays it's hard to find such cases because usually investors are seeking more traction out of a uh, startup now. They want more proof of concept as opposed to just like funding something blindly. So are investors coming in later in the phase? Later in the sense that they want to see a little bit more results. But that, that doesn't mean that it takes a long time to get those results because now we live in a very fast-paced world with cloud computing and all these types of technology that allows an individual or like a small team to be able to scale up a business and to be able to test out ideas using very little resources. What are some of the personality traits 
that you see as a constant with successful entrepreneurs? I would say like the first one is gutsy. Like they pretty much can make decisions and go with it, despite like you know other people would think like, "Wow, are you crazy? Like doing that? Like why would you even do that?" Or a lot other people would make up a lot of excuses on not to do something. But usually, entrepreneurs who are out to successful and especially they when they see something, they would go and get it. They would take the opportunity and like you know. They might not be as risk averse compared to the rest of the population. You know, they would actually not see as much risk. They would actually see the good side of it, and not so much the bad side. So another trait is the op- optimism of these people. You know, they're usually very optimistic, right? Even if all else fails, they'll still see a light at the end of the tunnel. You've worked abroad. But your business now, working with startups, is in Hong Kong. Tell me a little bit about the Hong Kong startup scene. So Hong Kong startup scene has grown a tremendous amount in the past few years. Some uh, research from Google showed that it basically grew 300% in the last few years, which is amazing. And I do observe that. And I guess one of the key things that is driving this huge growth is all these new startup technology. Like I think iPhone or the, the new mobile space has a lot to do with it. You know the app world, and actually it's making people realize that hey, actually, you know there are new ways to do business. There are actually um, solutions to common problems that we have that is completely different. For example, like you know if you take. Um, Yeah, I guess Google Van or Uber, for example. Who would have thought like you could actually call a, a van or a taxi so easily on your phone, and not without having to call uh, a dispatch center, for example? You know, all these kind of technology disrupts like traditional business ideas, and sometimes people are, find it surprising. And you know, why they didn't they didn't think of this idea? I think one of the reasons is because people are too comfortable. Suffering from like the usual problem that they have, that they don't they don't even realize it's a problem anymore, but it's actually a big problem. And finally, this week we don't end with our usual app review. Instead, I invite you to head over to the Twenty Eight Tech webpage, where we've uploaded videos and descriptions of some of the most interesting and unique projects currently seeking crowdsourced funding. I leave you with a taste of our selection, showcasing the bizarre and quirkier side of technology. Whether they'll turn out to be fantastic failures or success stories is yet to be determined. Introducing Blue Smart, the first carry-on that connects to your smartphone with revolutionary features, including a digital lock, proximity sensors, location tracking, trip tracking information, a built-in digital scale. And if that wasn't enough, a built-in battery that can charge your phone six times over. And the impossible is the first bike you can put it in the backpack. Have you ever dreamed of a real portable bike? Here it is. That's why we built Mouser, the first robotic cat toy made specifically to react to your cat's movements, just like real prey, bringing the excitement of a Tom and Jerry cartoon right into your living room. And that's all from me this week. Thank you for listening, and do join us next week at the same time.